Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 18 A quote relevant to Chapter 18 Forget not that the earth likes to feel your feet, and the winds love to play with your hair. Cahil Gibran, 1883-1931 to Gladesdale to Little Beck Eight miles, four hours walking. Overnight showers left the trees radiant and the air refreshed. The sky was clear and the weather forecast agreeable for an unhurried stroll through the Esk Valley. The trail started near Beggar's Bridge, an elegant sweep of early 17th century masonry which spans the River Esk. The trees of East Arnfield Wood showed no sign of autumnal colour. Even in late September, the foliage remained vital and flawless. The painted face of autumn was still off-stage, and there were no drifts of fallen leaves to kick about over the rough stone slab path. Beneath the bright sky, the dense silver birch woodland danced in a flickering dappled light more midsummer than early fall. The river was our constant companion, and all the while the water whispered secrets in the mysterious daydream tongue so cherished by freshwater anglers. Near the hamlet of Egton Bridge, a solitary fisherman whipped fly onto the slow-shifting waters of the meandering river. Perhaps it was in an equally picturesque bend in the river that Mr. Green had landed the wild salmon we'd so enjoyed the previous evening. Content with the day and the tranquil beauty of the place brought a stillness of mind that banished thought and loosened limbs to an effortless ease. Being at one with each step, each breath, and all about was balm to the soul, which released the spirit to soar. Deceptively, all was not as it seemed at tranquil Egton Bridge. Beneath the surface, a dark and sinister truth lay dormant. In the early days of the Church of England, many dissidents who persisted in genuflecting to Catholic Rome were hunted down and harshly dealt with. Such a one was the local priest, Nicholas Postgate. Poor old Nicholas was outed, and what a frightful price he paid for devotion to his faith. Like his fellow religious rebel, Guy Fawkes, Postgate was hung, drawn, and quartered as an example to others. Nicholas was martyred for his beliefs, and his relics are on display at St. Hedda's Church. As neither Peter nor I are Catholic, we left the glorification of leftover body parts to the devout. Religious persecution has not gone away. When I worked in Saudi Arabia, non-Muslims were barred from holding religious ceremonies. Even the word Christmas could only be whispered behind a cupped hand. In the Riyadh compound in which I lived, a Mormon family regularly hosted secret prayer meetings. If Matawa, the Saudi Arabian religious police, had caught wind of the assemblies and arrested the congregation, the flock would most probably have been manacled, head-shaved, jailed, and eventually deported, with all their possessions impounded. Although this may seem a heavy-handed price to pay for prayer, it's a far cry from the retribution meted out to Nicholas Postgate, whose giblets were nailed to a tree. The magnificent Egton Manor sits behind a screen of trees in a splendid leafy garden on the banks of the River Esk. A lane on our trail was a shortcut that halves the walking distance between the villages of Egton Bridge and Grosmont. 
In the days when the Acton Bridge estate owned the lane, a toll was levied on travellers. The Tollgate Notice Board listed the charges to be wrestled from travellers and included the special category, hearse, sixpence. In the good old days, even the dead were fair game for Yorkshire's blood-sucking squires. Perhaps it was no accident that Count Dracula chose to make landfall thereabouts. Grossmont's main street was heaving with crowds of day-trippers and train-spotters. A wheezing steam train of the North Yorkshire Moors Railway was building up ahead of steam in the marshalling yards. Every now and then, a shrill blast on the engine's whistle galvanised the throng waiting on the station platform for the train to appear. Because the railway had featured in television dramas, Brideshead Revisited and Heartbeat, and more recently the magical Harry Potter films, its celebrity guaranteed interest from a wider public than the usual steam train enthusiasts. Our guidebook explained that there was an alleyway passing through a long tunnel to the railway yards and loco sheds, where the engines could be viewed being prepared for action. The tunnel was no ordinary excavation, but one of the oldest railway tunnels in the world. It was used by George Stevenson's horse-drawn railway. Whilst digging the tunnel, they struck ironstone, and hey presto, mining began in the Esk Valley. To be free of the hubbub, we didn't explore the tunnel, but forged ahead to the open heath of Slight's Moor, part of an area bizarrely named Eskdale Side Cum Uggledarnby CP on the Ordnance Survey Map. Lying full length in the warm autumn sun on a soft bed of springy heather was blessed relief after the arduous ascent from the valley floor. Back across the sunlit Esk Valley, the countryside radiated a rich vitality that mirrored our mood of serene contentment. As usual, the moorland showed veiled signs of man's long occupation. There were tumuli burial mounds, and the scattered monoliths that make up the high bride stones. The five standing stones have haunted the moorland since ancient times, yet still bear witness to the long-forgotten ceremonies ingrained in their fissures. Visitors persist in making offerings to the prehistoric pagan deities. Coins of the realm are wedged or hammered into every crack or crevice in the stones. In keeping with survival lessons learned in my childhood, I tried to dislodge the higher value coins. Not only did I fail to loosen a single coin, but was equally unsuccessful in finding a fissure in which to fix a stipend for my own absolution. Copper, it would seem, is an inadequate tithe to tempt favour from the ancient gods. Even without success at trading forgiveness, the shamanistic wisdom ingrained within the pagan high-bride stones didn't allow me to leave empty-handed. Balanced on the jagged shoulder of the largest monolith was a piece of black material which at first glance I took to be a shard of bakelite. Closer examination exposed its true worth. I'd struck it rich. My find was a rough chunk of jet, a form of lignite that can be carved and highly polished for use in jewellery, perhaps a mystical keepsake for Colleen. Against the open sky, the silhouette of heavy goods vehicles on the A169 was as obvious to us as a twenty-deck aircraft carrier sailing through the Suez Canal would be to a desert nomad. With a landmark like that, we couldn't go wrong, but we did. After crossing the A169 road, we had difficulty picking up the trail. 
the guidebook clearly showed a path and a stile a few yards to the right. The ordnance survey map had the trail a good distance to the left. After some discussion, I set off to the right along the roadside verge in search of the stile. Peter trudged along behind. The traffic was a continuous flow in both directions. The closeness and speed of the vehicles was unnerving, the noise intolerable, and yet for some irrational reason I lumbered on. After half a mile of hell, I stopped and waited for Peter to catch up. He had long since realised that I was heading in the wrong direction, but was unable to warn me over the thunderous traffic noise. How I persisted with such madness, I can't explain. Perhaps pagan power was alive and well, wrecking revenge for my light-fingered lifting of the jet offering to the spirits of high bright stones. All we wanted to do was get as far away as possible from that horrific place. Unfortunately, there were only two ways out, and both were unpalatable. We could retrace our footsteps alongside the road, or strike off through the marshy field. The only acceptable choice was to chance our hand through the swamp. After a wretched time, battling through a quagmire of bog holes and waist-high tussock grass, we arrived back where we started, and knowing the place for the second time, found the path almost immediately. Each step away from the appalling A169 revived our crushed spirits. Skirting low Quebec farm, we entered a wonderful lane hemmed in on both sides by high hedge groves that were a treasure trove of bright berries. The sheltered southern-facing hillside was ideally situated to soak up the long afternoon warmth to ripen the fruit. Throughout all the years I've gathered blackberries, I've never seen such a varied and lavish larder for winter wildlife. Peter and I gorged on the lustrous fruit, until our smiles were open wounds of purple juice. We wended our way down the sunny hillside to Little Beck, an idyllic wooded hamlet of honey-coloured stone cottages set amidst banks of rambling roses. Admiring the quaint charm of Little Beck, it was difficult to imagine that for over two hundred years it had been a shale quarry for the alum industry, how caringly Mother Nature tends her wounds. After a day sightseeing and window shopping for antiques, Colleen was waiting in the car to whisk us away to the digs where we could freshen up. Our lodgings weren't a dedicated B&B, &B, but a working farm that took in guests. It was some time before anybody made an appearance at the farm. When the young woman emerged from the squat farmhouse, I was surprised to see that she was barefooted. I've got nothing against bare feet. On the contrary, I consider bare feet to be Australia's finest export to the Western world. However, going barefoot in a Yorkshire farmyard may be taking foot liberation a hint too far. Rusty nails, sharp stones and cow flops all conceal the dubious delights of tetanus-induced lockjaw. The landlady was full of fun and immediately made us feel at home in the wonderfully sprawling farmhouse. I had a super upstairs room with a long view across the fields to the hills beyond. Later, when I entered the lounge, Peter was engaged in a spirited conversation with a neat middle-aged Canadian. The bear trapper exuded an earnest desire to be liked. He adopted a fixed smile, which he was able to sustain as he spoke. The leer, linked with burning eye contact, made for a winning combination that oozed the insincerity of a super-salesman. He was an energetic speaker, 
bouncing about on the couch as he spoke. I found his strident eagerness to please, and his animated smile a trifle unnerving. I should have left at once, but instead joined in the conversation, an action I immediately regretted. What's the feeling in Canada about the Iraq war? I inquired innocently. I'm disgusted at the deluge of anti-Americanism in this country, he hissed, tossing his head forward and down like a mountain goat ready to charge. Watch out for this one, I thought. Personally, I remarked, hoping to find neutral ground. I believe the resignation of the British Foreign Secretary over Iraq was the single honourable act in the entire British government in relation to the war. I can't stand ingratitude, he persisted. This country owes America an enormous debt for being rescued in the First and Second World Wars. Not only that, but everybody knows the UK is in Washington's pocket anyway. He spat, twisting his legs under himself in a gesture of childish petulance. The ranting and odd behaviour both amused and troubled me. How could this apparently intelligent middle-aged man associate such utterly unrelated events in so irrational a way? Happily, I was spared further dripping scorn by the sound of food being served in the next room. There were seven of us for dinner. I sat next to the other half of the Canadian couple, a thin-lipped fellow with a stony face and a hard, truculent stare. We were lucky with the weather in the Lake District, explained the talkative Canadian, and we were able to scale both Red Pike and Hell Valley. Over the years we've walked in many parts of the world, he continued, and I believe the coast-to-coast -coast path to be the finest, superior by far to New Zealand's awe-inspiring trails. The other two diners were English lads in their late twenties. Having only a short break from work, they were yomping the trail in double-quick time. They'd moved at a cracking pace, covering twenty miles a day. To make the going even more arduous, they were humping camping gear, which they had in case they couldn't find lodgings. I'm doing a doctorate in computational physics at Cambridge, said one. The other was working in industry, having attended Imperial College, the academy where I briefly studied oilfield reservoir engineering. We found the going difficult, explained Imperial College, but we're enjoying the experience. After listening to the other walkers' exploits, I realised how well Peter had planned our trip. Each day we'd completed a fair distance without overextending ourselves, and we'd still had time to relax and enjoy our surroundings. Dinner was a rare and incomparable experience. Perhaps an outsider may have regarded it as an ordinary three-course meal. For those dining, it was a mammoth undertaking that left everyone replete and exhausted. Once the soup bowls were cleared away, the table was spread with enormous platters containing enough food to stay the appetites of a dozen famished farmhands. We worked through slabs of lasagna, acres of beef pie, huge chunks of chicken pie, and mounds of boiled potatoes and green vegetables. The feast was rounded off with blackberries and apple crumble, smothered in thick yellow custard. Not only had the farmer picked the blackberries from the hedgerows that evening, but the beef was home-grown, reared on the farm. It wasn't until the last person shied away from a third helping of crumble that it was understood dinner had come to an end. Before climbing the stairs, I phoned my sister and learned that our brother had recovered from his strange and frightful chemotherapy-induced antics.
As a result of the attack, he would begin radiation treatment on his lungs one week later than originally scheduled. With this news, I went to bed feeling ill at ease. I was overstuffed with food and gravely concerned for my brother's well-being. 